The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 43 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that of my present and past employers. I will never disclose any sense of intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. <laughs> So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, in analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So as always, I want to start out this show by giving a shout-out to my guest last week. And in this case, he was a personal friend of mine and someone I've had the pleasure of working extensively with in the past. This dude is rock solid. He's a solid professional. His name is Eric Huber. And if you haven't heard of him, Eric's the current Vice President of International Strategic Initiatives at the National White Collar Crime Center, otherwise affectionately known as the NW3C. And he broke down crypto crimes in a way that only he can. We spoke about the history of virtual currencies. We spoke about blockchain and cryptocurrencies. We spoke about Bitcoin, Monero, what the future of crypto crime looks like, and even what law enforcement needs to do to investigate crypto crimes in the future. So you're not going to hear a breakdown on crypto crimes like this on any other radio show, folks. If you missed last week's show, I urge you to go back. Take the time to listen, please. It's great stuff. It's interesting stuff. You'll walk away with something you didn't know before the show started, I promise you. The Vice President of International and Strategic Initiatives at the National White Collar Crime Center, Eric Huber, on last week's episode. That's episode number 42 of Task Force 7 Radio. So how do you listen to last week's episode, you ask? This is the most frequent question I still get, so I'm going to tell you. You can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. We really appreciate you subscribing to the show. Thanks so much. So, well, tonight, we're going to have one of our returning rock stars here on Task Force 7 Radio. We're going to have cybersecurity legal expert, 
Adriana Sanford on the show with us tonight. Adriana's been on the show with us before. She has one of the top five most listened to episodes in Task Force 7 radio history, and she has the most listeners of any episode in, in the three months of the episode being aired, which is pretty quite impressive. You know, that's, that's really impressive stuff considering the company she's in with all the guests that we have on this show and the quality of guests. So very impressive and kudos and accolades to her. So you probably all know Ergiana because she's been on, but in the rare event, you haven't heard her uh, on before and you haven't heard her speak uh, somewhere else. I'm going to give you a little background about her. Adriana is not only a cybersecurity expert, but she is a multidimensional professional with experience and expertise in a variety of different domains. And so that's what makes her so interesting to listen to. It's really interesting stuff when she talks. She's a really good speaker. In addition to being an internationally recognized cybersecurity legal expert, she's an expert on many other global threats that create barriers to profitability, sabotage supply chains, and endanger national interests. And she often talks about some cybersecurity legal issues that threaten national security. So Sanford focuses on laws at the international level and how the regulation of global threats from jurisdictions outside the U.S. can create corporate exposure and criminal liability for executives in the U.S., so including laws involving the use of information technology and cryptocurrencies across national boundaries, which fits right into what we're talking about. And since we just had my good friend Eric Huber in to break down cryptocurrencies and crypto crime for us last week, I thought Adriana would be a great guest to have back and I have her talk about some of the privacy issues and some of the other nefarious things going on with cryptocurrencies around the world. So without any further ado, please welcome Adriana Sanford to the show. Adriana, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks, George. I'm glad to be back. Great. So look, to kick off this segment, I want to do some level setting around this issue. Can you provide a global overview of some of the privacy laws and some of the effects that they've had on, on companies worldwide? Sure. Right now, what we're seeing is a global trend, and all around the world, we're seeing uh, countries are revising their laws, and they, a lot of them, what they're doing is they're taking a variation of the GDPR, which is the strongest privacy law out there. It actually came into effect in May of this year uh, by the EU. And we have right now well over 770 privacy and data protection laws out there in the world. Um, and what we're seeing is more and more companies are having to comply with these laws, are getting touched by these laws, and more and more countries are giving people control over their personal data. That's what's going on. That's the growing movement. That's the, glo the, the global trend right now. So, by the way, how are people dealing with GDPR so far? Was it May 25th? I think it was... It was uh was the first uh, time it was supposed to come out. I mean, what's your feel for how people are coping with the new law? Well, what's happening is the multinationals, as you know, have been looking at this and have known about this for over two years. So we are seeing that the multinationals are doing pretty well. They're complying. They've set up their programs and whatnot. But the smaller companies, the smaller businesses, the medium and small businesses, a lot of them were not aware of this, and it caught them by surprise. They weren't aware that they would actually have to comply with this regulation because this regulation is in Europe. And the companies, the businesses that do not have a presence in Europe really are not looking at the international 
uh, arena. They're not thinking of the consequences and the extraterritorial reach of other jurisdictions outside of the U.S. So they are the ones that are having a difficult time right now, especially those that don't have counsel. A lot of these smaller companies don't have in-house counsel, and they don't seek advice of legal counsel until they get to this point when they realize, wow, this is actually going to affect me. The GDPR is a very broad um, um, uh, law out there, and it will affect any company that markets to the EU citizens, that works with EU citizens, um, that's on the internet and touches EU citizens, as well as companies that hire EU citizens in the United States. It doesn't matter, unlike some other laws, with regards to the EU, it doesn't matter where these individuals are located. It doesn't matter if they're traveling or living in Iowa or, 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 you know, or, or whatnot. These individuals are protected because there's a fundamental right to privacy in their country and in each one of these countries. So regardless of where they are, if they come to your business and you're working with an EU citizen in any manner, you're going to be affected and you're going to have to comply with the general regulation with this EU GDPR. So as you know, I'm starting Task Force 7. It's a professional network for cybersecurity professionals. And I've been on the phone with my privacy attorney uh, nonstop, it seems, right? But it seems like, look, I mean, I would think at least, and I'm, I'm familiar with GDPR and and uh, in terms of what it what the what corporations have to do to comply with it, but in in, in my case, in the in the uh, small business arena that you just mentioned, I think I would have an advantage of just starting out now and creating policies and creating structure and creating data protection uh, prevention. Uh, uh, controls that are compliant with GDPR as opposed to these really large organizations who now have to go back and have to almost redo everything and redo their policies and their process, their procedures. It seems to me like some companies that are starting out, at least with the smaller and medium companies, if they're just starting out, wouldn't they have an advantage in your mind or you think it's just going to be just as hard? Hopefully you'll say well, I have an advantage. <laughs> you do have an advantage, I think. And, and, and not only that, being a smaller company, from what I understand, the penalties, they, they're going to be a little bit more lenient with you. Um, from what I gather, and again, this is not legal advice, but from what I understand, the EU realizes that there are a lot of smaller and medium-sized companies that had no clue and were not ready. So they're going to be a little bit more lenient with regards to penalties. Um, the larger companies that have been functioning for a long time definitely need a privacy privacy management throughout the company's organization. And they're going to have to have a comprehensive privacy framework because, as I mentioned, they're starting to realize that many of these countries will have laws that have an extraterritorial reach. And by an extraterritorial reach, it means you don't necessarily need to have a presence there. You don't need to have a sub, an affiliate, a branch. But if you are somehow operating or working in a space that touches that country, if there's an extraterritorial reach, you will have to comply. So the bigger companies, they have a lot of employees, they have a lot of work before them, and to try to comply with the laws of only one country is not going to work. They need to hire a data protection officer. They need to hire someone who deals with privacy and privacy management and can actually map this out and put it together. So what are some of the biggest privacy challenges that cybersecurity professionals are facing today, and how do we address them? 
Well, the biggest challenges are the fact that there are different countries popping up with different laws. And as I mentioned before, the GDPR is a framework and there are different variations out there. South Africa, um, India is, is creating their own now. And each one of these countries, some of them match up and some will not. So the privacy professionals need to figure out how each country will match up against the GDPR if they have to comply with the GDPR and which laws do not match up. And in that space, we're even looking at the laws now in the United States. We have a patchwork system right now of laws. We have all these different states have come up with their own laws and regulations to try to protect their residents. And as a result of that, there's a mosaic structure and it's a jungle out there. It's a jungle out there for our privacy professionals. And what we really would like to see is more uniformity because the costs, there are a significant amount of costs in trying to keep up with what those laws are. And they will continue. What we will see is this trend will continue. We're going to see more and more uh, countries changing their laws in this space, there will always be more changes with privacy legislation. So no matter where this company is located and in how many countries it operates, they're going to be have to be on top of this. The privacy professional will have to be will have to keep ahead of the curve and 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 and, and try to figure out how they match up and how they, they can work in this space. So Adriana, considering your expertise in this space, do you predict that Unless there's some kind of streamlined international standard that everyone can look to uh, in, in terms of being in compliance and uh, moving their controls to comply with that specific standard, if we're going to keep going in this direction where everyone's just going to keep changing the laws and making it, how is that going to affect business? I mean, it's a challenge, but how much is it really going to hurt business? Because it seems to me like it could really become disruptive and it could become counter, counterproductive at some point. Oh, absolutely. But if you take a look at what happens, you know, there is a cost to technology. And if we don't pay the cost of being compliant and going through all of these uh, tasks, the cost is the hacks. The cost is the cyber attacks. The cost is what happened with Facebook, which to us was a violation of our privacy. Even though it was sold and we knew who was doing it, we consider it an attack. So the cost is either either to our privacy, and, and mind you, we, have, we are in the age of terrorist attacks. So the consumer wants to protect themselves against hacks. The consumer wants to protect themselves against terrorism. The country wants to protect themselves against terrorism. So we've got national security interests, balancing our privacy rights, balancing the, the ability, and, and one of the big ones here, is the data brokers and the profiles that they make on us that we don't even know what they say. And then this information is given to an employer or a potential employer, and it really doesn't even fit who you are, and you're not getting that job. So there's so many different competing ways of looking at this, and we really need some uniformity. We need some structure. What would we like to see in the world? Well, at some point, we need to realize that in order to protect ourselves from some of these borderless crimes, we need to work together. If we're going to protect ourselves from the hacks, you know, we need to be working with other countries on this. If we want to protect ourselves against terrorism, if we want to combat terrorism, these are issues, these are global threats, and we really need to work together. So, as I mentioned, 
the EU's GDPR, a lot of other countries in the world are adopting it. The countries that are adopting it are countries that also believe in that basic fundamental right to privacy. The U.S. doesn't have that fundamental right. In this country, it's still not accepted. So until we have that, we're probably not jumping on board, but I think we're getting close. I think Americans are starting to realize that other citizens in other countries have this, and why don't we have that right? So, Adrian, and this was a this was a good opening. This is a good uh, brief on what we're going to talk about for the rest of the show in the next two segments. Um, we're going to have to take some time to go to commercial break, but I want to come back. I want to talk about the the, uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act. I want to get your opinion on that, and I also want to talk about some of these nefarious things going on with cryptocurrencies. Build on what Eric. Uh, talked about in our last show and discuss how governments are using cryptocurrencies to avoid sanctions. So uh, lots of good stuff coming up with Adriana. Uh, so stay tuned and uh, right after these messages. So hey, look, if, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you, folks. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, cybersecurity legal expert, Adriana Sanford. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, cybersecurity legal expert, Adriana Sanford. So, Adriana, I want to talk about privacy for this segment of the show before we dive into the cryptocurrency stuff, because there are some new laws out there that everyone should know about. And since I have you on the show, I want to take advantage of your expertise and the time we have with you today. So, we always talk about this in the cybersecurity space. I mean, privacy is a huge, huge part of the cybersecurity space, it's, and it affects all aspects of the cybersecurity ecosystem. And especially in the prevention phase, particularly in the data protection area, as well as the incident response phase of the ecosystem. So to kick this, to kick this segment off, there's some new laws emerging in the United States. Can you give us an overview of the California Consumer Privacy Act, otherwise known as the CCPA, and what that's all about? Sure, the, the CCPA, uh, just came in. It was adopted last month, uh, June 28th, by the California State Legislature, and it was signed into force by the governor. It's not going to be effective until January 2020. But what it basically gives is it gives consumers rights and controls over their personal information. And there are certain transparency requirements with regards to how companies are using data. What are their data practices? And it's a big deal. It's a big deal for California residents, and it's a very big deal for Americans because this is actually a higher level of data protection than we've ever had in this country. So is it is it higher than the GDPR, for instance? Or is it, you know, is it, and does, is it? It's not as high as a GDPR, but I would say, um, and it's certainly um, having a GDPR program will not be enough to address their requirements because they're different. So don't think that just because you have GDPR, you're covered here because they are different reg- different rights, but it is not as strong. And the reason it's not as strong is the coverage. Who does it cover? Uh, the GDPR covers all EU citizens, regardless of where they are in the world. Uh, one significant difference with the GDPR is that the California Consumer Privacy Act is for California residents. So the people that are being protected here are the residents of California. If you move out of the state, you're no longer covered. So that, that's a really big difference. Yeah, that's a huge difference right there. Is that the main uh, difference in, uh, under the obligations under this new law and how it differs from GDPR? Or are there many other different obligations? Well, that would be probably the biggest. It, is, it only applies to persons who have their habitual place of residence in this golden state. Um, there, you know, the GDPR establishes rights irrespective of nationality and 
irrespective of habitual place of residence. So because they believe in a fundamental right to privacy. So I'd say the biggest difference is in the United States, we don't have a basic fundamental right to privacy. And that still does not exist. Right. I, and, I, and I keep hearing that as sort of the main theme and maybe some of the issues that we're having here. It just seems like a really big deal to me. How many companies across the United States will be impacted and what companies specifically should be paying attention here? It's going, it's the, it has wide range implications for companies in the U.S. and those abroad. It applies to any businesses that operate in California uh, that operate for profit or financial benefit uh, and collect consumers' personal information if they meet one of these following criteria. They have to either have a gross annual revenue of $25 million, they uh, annually buy, sell, or receive uh, for commercial purposes um, information, personal information of 50,000 or more consumers or households or devices, or they derive 50% or more of their annual revenues from selling consumers' personal information. So in a nutshell, those are the companies that are going to be affected. But that being said, and it doesn't matter where you're located if you're operating for profit or financial benefit here, right? But also, it also touches your subs and your franchise businesses if they have a common branding with the business. So all of a sudden, that just got broader. And let's not forget about those indirect companies that will be impacted. Any companies, if they're doing business with you, with those companies that are covered, so those in the supply chain, will also be indirectly um, impacted by this law. So it really is a lot of people, a lot, I'm sorry, a lot of companies in the United States and abroad that will be impacted. Well, you brought up a good question about the people. This seems like a very, very far-reaching uh, uh, re regulation to me, um, this Privacy Act. How many Americans could be or would be affected by the CCPA? Well, what you have to think about, George, is California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Oh, it's so it's huge. And so what we're looking at and what we estimate, and this is just an estimate, is they're saying that probably one in eight Americans will be affected. And remember, this is creating unprecedented privacy rights in the United States. So many Americans are going to be affected. And the other seven, if it's one in eight, are wondering, hey, why am I not covered? Why am I not protected? So right now we're looking at one in eight Americans, but I can guarantee you that once this starts to roll out, those other seven Americans are going to say, hey, how about my state? How about protecting me as well? Exactly. So I think cybersecurity professionals are already reeling from GDPR and they're trying to get their arms around this new regulation and how it affects their, their, their company. And now we have this California law that came out. What if these other, what if we get a couple dozen other states coming out with big, huge, comprehensive laws as well? I mean, how, we just talked about the complexity a minute ago, but now we're talking about it just within the United States and all these different states having different, different uh, privacy acts. How's that going to affect business here? Well, a couple things. First of all, yes, other states could follow suit. 
And what could also happen is this could lead Congress to taking a step and actually enacting federal, a federal privacy standard, which I think would be awesome because that would create uniformity. That seems like um, the logical thing to do, right? Having this consistency and uniformity and standardization across the entire nation instead of having all these different disparate rules and everybody sort of operating in these myopic environments, causing corporations to duplicate all their work and, and create all this extra cost, right? Oh, I agree. And I think instituting stronger privacy protections at the federal level might be next. But if not, you know, there is a need to eliminate the current inconsistent patchwork that exists in the United States. And there's a need also for greater protection of all U.S. citizens. I think what will happen is if that doesn't happen and the states may or may not proactively pass similar legislation. But what we will see is a lot of the private sector, the tech companies that are here in California or the tech companies that have to comply with this, uh, and they will tailor their data uh, practices for California residents. They may not only tailor it for California residents, but they may extend it to all those citizens, all those individuals in the entire country. So the private sector may actually kind of take the lead if the other states don't start to jump in proactively, and if we don't see federal legislation, we may see the private sector actually stepping up. Do you see the, the, a massive lobbying effort on the behalf of the private sector to Congress to sort of implement this standardization and adopt uh, a law, either, either this law or a law just like it on an international level? Well, or a national think, well, level, I should say. I'm well, what, what I think we will see is there's going to be a lot of lobbying. There'll be some companies that say, hey, what are the costs to the companies to comply with this? Yeah, the I mean, costs are too big. Yeah. They, may, they may say that, but what you have to keep in mind is we're talking about technology, and there are always costs. There are either costs to make these companies comply so that we have the protection, or there are costs like what happened with Facebook. There are costs to the Either way, we're going to have to face the cost. Either we pay uh, because the companies will then go ahead and pass the cost on to the consumer, or we pay because we've been hacked, or because our, our, our information has been compromised, such as what happened with the Facebook and with the elections. You know, this is new technology, and there are always going to be costs. So there's a lot of professionals out there right now listening to this show going, oh, my goodness, not another law. I, gotta, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it can be overwhelming. How should companies begin to prepare for the CCPA? Well, first of all, the CCPA, as I mentioned, is not going to be enforced until January 2020. So between now and then, there will be, I'm sure, some amendments. In 2019, we're going to probably see, you know, um, technical and substantive issues, you know, that are identified and tweaked and whatnot. Um, but the way they should plan on this is start now to closely monitor those developments and undertake an assessment of your compliance obligations and say, hey, are we compliant? This is going to require a significant amount of structural, operational, and legal changes in a lot of different uh, ways that companies uh, organize themselves and uh, the organization's privacy practices. If you're already doing GDPR, then it may be easier for you to map this out and figure out what the differences are and where you need to go. But if you haven't started and you, you, you have not, you're not complying with GDPR because it doesn't affect you and you happen to be working and operating with California, you need to start now. Remember, for GDPR, we had some companies that were actually starting two years before, and here we're talking about 18 months. Well, that leads me to the, the next question is, you know, is that long enough for most companies 
to get themselves to be in compliant with this new CCPA. And, and also, I would like to follow up with that, get your opinion on how aggressive do you think it's going to be enforced once that date passes? Well, okay, these are some very important questions. First of all, how aggressive? What are the costs of non-compliance with this? It could cost the companies dearly because what we're looking at is $7,500 per incident. So let's say you're not compliant and let's say there was a data breach involving 10,000 customers. You could, that could end up costing your business $75 million. So the costs mean, are One high. incident would mean one piece of data, you mean? So data breach. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. so the costs are going to be high for this. And you, if, you know, what does this mean for your company? Well, let's go over what are the core obligations. The core obligations under this new, this new CCPA is there are five rights uh, that have been awarded to California residents. The first one is the right to know what, PI, what your personal information, what is being collected, right? What's being collected about me? And whether that information is being sold or disclosed and to whom. Let's take an example. When I'm on Facebook, did you know that Facebook partners with your loyalty card when you go to the grocery store? Um, you know, when you're driving and uh, your information is tracked, well, that information goes to the police, but it also goes to some data brokers. So this is what we're talking about. Where is my information? Who's tracking it? Who's collecting it? Who are you selling it to? That kind of information is going to be protected. The other issue is the right to say no. We have a right to say no to the sale of our personal information now. We also have a right to access it, which is wonderful because up to date, up to now, I don't know what information has been collected on me, and I don't have access to it. We have access to our financial records, so I can go to... TransUnion or Equifax, and I can see and say, hey, this is correct. No, I need to fix this. This is wrong. We don't have access to all of our personal information that's given to the data brokers. Under the new law, guess what? We get to request a list, a detailed list of what's there, and clean it up or say, hey, you know what? I don't want that out there. Delete it. We have a right to delete. And it's not because it's wrong. It's because it's private. So a lot, of, a lot of these cybersecurity professionals listen to the show are in the risk business. They, they, they analyze cybersecurity risk or cyber risk all the time. And, and from a prediction standpoint, that's a very important piece of what they do. So how, what other changes can cybersecurity professionals predict in the privacy space in the near future and why should they expect it? Well, we're going to, what we are going to see is a lot more changes in the privacy section and even in the definitions. Um, remember, you know, when we're talking about legalese, a word to me may mean one thing and to somebody else may mean something different. Like the word reasonable. The word reasonable to a lawyer means a lot. That word is loaded. And when you put that into a contract, you need to make sure you know what that word means and how long and for what period of time. When you're dealing with other countries and you're using legalese, you need to be very, very careful because the other individuals may not understand the legalese. Right now, we're talking about personal information. It's a word we've used a lot on this show. But personal information to a lot of people means their social security card. It means their address. It means their name. Well, in this circle that we're talking about right now, the CCPA, the word personal information carries a lot more 
than just the basics. It's beyond what is, has been traditionally identified under existing U.S. law as personal. For example, it's also your commercial information. It's, it's records of products and services that you purchased or that you considered purchasing. It's your, your history or your tendencies. That is your personal information. So commercial information as well as internet activity. Your browsing and your search history. Guess what? Your interaction with other uh, advertisements, what you clicked on. That is now considered your personal information. Lastly, inferences drawn from your personal information that create your profile and reflect consumer preferences and attitudes. So all of this, traditionally, when we're looking at words, don't assume that you know the definition or how broad it is. Most privacy statutes out there right now exclude publicly available information from personal information. This new law in California, guess what? Information collected from either federal, state, or local governments that is publicly available is also going to constitute personal information if it's used for a purpose that is different than what it was made for. So you need to be careful. And I can't give you all the specifics. You need to hire a lawyer. This is not legal advice, but heads up. Those words and a lot of what you're seeing out there is a lot deeper um, and more complex than what you may know. Some good advice, folks, from somebody who really knows their business. We're going to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from cybersecurity legal expert, Adriana Sanford, after some of these messages from our sponsors. Right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, cybersecurity legal expert, Adriana Sanford. So, Adriana, I want to get your insight on what's going on here with cryptocurrencies across the globe. I think there's some very nefarious stuff going on. And we talked to Eric, and he kind of laid it out a little bit from the cybercrime perspective. I want to ask you, could you discuss how governments are using cryptocurrencies to avoid sanctions? Right. This is a, this is a new uh, use for cryptocurrencies. What we're seeing is some countries are dodging international sanctions. And the, the countries that, were, that, that are popping up right now, uh, the first one was Venezuela. And now we're seeing that Iran is considering this. And we know that Russia was considering it, but they didn't do it. They, there's actually information out there that they may have helped Venezuela because they wanted to see how it would work and whether... Um, whether it would work. So these are some of the regions and some, you know, some of the countries, but it's a concern because, you know, it's, it's a new way for a country that we may be um, having issues with to avoid the U.S. sanctions. So how exactly does this work? I mean, and what does it mean for the United States? The way it works is a cryptocurrency provides um, anonymity and plausible deniability as to the way things are transferred. Uh, Buying and selling across borders is done with very little oversight and therefore you don't really know what's going on. You don't don't know that those violations are taking place. Uh, This can be a problem and we've seen in the past that there are several countries that don't allow cryptocurrency transactions at all because they're used to, to launder money. And there's great concern. There's also hackers, you know, the hacking of the cryptocurrency. And it's done without any digital trace. So for many reasons, we've seen regulators and we've seen governments say, no, we don't want that. Bangladesh, actually, there's uh, if you are involved in cryptocurrency transactions, the penalty can be up to 12 years imprisonment. Wow, wow. So, yeah, so now what we're seeing is something a little bit different. We're seeing that some of these countries uh, that are trying to avoid, uh, you know, that these these sanctions, the sanction-busting tactics have now come up with this new use, and uh, and, uh, it's concerning. Is that something that you think is a good idea, and do you subscribe to that, to outlawing cryptocurrencies altogether? My concern is the use of the cryptocurrency. There's some that are backed, like the there there is one in the Middle East, the one gram, which is actually backed by gold. Uh, the concern is the ones that are not backed. And the concern that we have is right now there are 1,500 cryptocurrencies in existence, and the combined value of that is more than 
$320 billion. And if we look at that, that's a lot. And there are different laws in different countries. And if you've got a supply chain and you're working with a country that does not accept cryptocurrency, it may, you may face imprisonment. Um, and if we look at the criminals and what are the criminals doing with this, we believe that about 1.2 billion exchanges in 2017-2018 uh, were done by the criminals, laundered money. So um, this is a concern. It's a concern because we cannot uh, regulate it, and regulators are behind the curve because it is, de- it is de- uh, centralized in nature. So does the nefarious uses of cryptocurrency and the bad things that are happening actually outweigh the good uses of cryptocurrency at some point? Obviously, some countries have decided that and outlawed it altogether. Right. I mean, but right. It, it, I think it depends on the country. And I, you know, again, this is not legal advice and right. I can't really, my opinion is not really, you know, what we, we look at here, but basically I would say that each country has to evaluate the pros and the cons of this, of this, uh, of this system, the Bitcoin, 40% of the transactions out there are Bitcoin. You know, if you look at Venezuela, Venezuela is uh, using their own virtual currency, which is called the Petro, and it's linked to South Americans, uh, to their to oil reserves. So in some cases, it's linked, uh, and in some cases, it's not. The problem with Venezuela, though, is we have sanctions with this country, and the reasons that the sanctions are in place are because of the dictatorship and the abuse Uh, the human right abuses that are occurring in that country. So we use sanctions in a way to stop certain activity that we don't agree with. Like in North Korea, the nuclear weapons and the uh, missile testing programs, that's the reason there's a sanction there. So if these countries are using this in a way to avoid those sanctions, um, you know, if money is flowing in and out of sanctioned countries, it's a concern for America. It's a concern it's a global concern because in some cases, well, of course, we can destabilize democracy. It can also support terrorist financing as well as other maligned activities. And, you know, in Russia, we've got some issues there, too. You know, it didn't, the Russian regime interfered with the U.S. elections and possibly the elections of other countries, and that may continue. So sanctions are used in a way to to address these issues. And without those sanctions, if we have governments that are going around them, it's, it's, it's going to create a global change. So to sort of level set the scope of what we're talking about here, which countries are currently being sanctioned by the U.S. and why? If we can get a broad overview of that. Well, there are a lot. Um, there are a lot of them. And, you know, you can go into the OFAC and, and, and take a look. That's O-F-A-C. But the... You know, I would say that the ones that come to mind that right now are important for this particular issue. You know, we know Venezuela is sanctioned, North Korea, Iran, uh, Cuba, Iraq, uh, Ukraine-related sanctions, and um, we also have many African countries, Libya, Somalia. So a lot of times they're dealing with human rights violations, and so this is concerning because the, the it is a failure to protect either their citizens or our citizens, it's national security interests. There's a lot involved here. So how about this? What if U.S. companies decide to try to go around these sanctions by using these cryptocurrencies? What's going to happen then? And, and how are you going to know? Actually, George, U.S. companies have in the past tried to go around sanctions to make more money. 
And it would not shock me that some do. It's important for those companies and those executives to understand the, the range of fines can be up to 20 million. And for those executives, imprisonment can be up to 30 years. So this is very, very serious. So I would not recommend that anybody be doing this. Um, <laughs> In the past, it, you know, ways that it's been done, you know, that I know of, um, what we see is we see a U.S. company with a foreign sub, and what they do sometimes is, you know, there may be some contracts that are um, grandfathered in, and they'll erase the numbers and continue to sell under those contracts uh, through those third parties, and that's illegal. I mean, anybody who's doing this type of stuff and anybody who knows about it can face imprisonment. If you are a U.S. person and you're aware that your company is doing this, you can face imprisonment. Yeah, that seems like a pretty hefty penalty. When we're talking about 30 years, you said? Yeah, up to 30 years. It's serious. And this is why we don't, you know, we don't take this lightly. And the fact that the cryptocurrency is being used in, in a way to avoid sanctions is of concern. So what, what effect could the use of cryptocurrencies have in the flow of money in and out of sanctioned countries? Well, as I mentioned, it could be aiding terrorist financing. Um, it could be tied, if, if we're talking about North Korea, it could be tied to nuclear weapons and missile testing programs. If we're talking about Venezuela, it could be helping support a dictator and, you know, whatever it is that he's doing. So it, it just depends on the each country's different. And there's a reason for those sanctions. So it could be supporting precisely what we don't want to support. And mind you, our troops are out there. Our people are out there. Our military you know, we're not asking for a victory garden anymore. What we're asking for is Americans to pay attention and to come forward and, and, and speak up. If you see something like this that's affecting, we all have family, we all have friends, we all know someone that's out there that's fighting and fighting this war. And keep in mind that any time a company or, or, you know, or, or a country does something, it does affect all of us. We are all interconnected. And you know, if you're an American citizen, don't give me a victory garden. Give me support here. So outside the effect that it would have, I guess, in the, uh, in the assistance it would have in terms of aiding and abetting anti-American or anti-Western interest in funding them, doesn't have any direct financial impact when people use these, uh, these currencies uh, outside of, you know, regular, uh, I should say, well, I want to say regular uh, historical financial systems. It does, because if we look at the global threats in the world, and you don't know where this money, again, as I mentioned, the, the anonymity of this, you can't trace no. it, you can't track it. And among the global threats out there, another huge one is product counterfeiting. And so that money can go for laundering, money laundering. It can go for product counterfeiting, which, again, directly affects our U.S. companies. It directly affects us. Counterfeiting is not a generic product. Counterfeiting can kill. It can affect us. It can, it can actually create drug-resistant diseases like malaria. Um, it can affect our teenagers. It can affect our college students because some of these products, you know, these spring breaks, the beer, if it's counterfeit beer, it can kill them because you don't know what they're putting into it. So, again, just like the issue, we're in the age of terrorism. We're also 
facing other global threats. We're facing counterfeiting. We're facing those attacks, the hack attacks. Bad actors can get in there and hack those cryptocurrencies, effectively stealing money without a digital trace. That's a concern for any citizen that's out there that's actually any person, not even citizen, U.S. citizen. Any person that's using cryptocurrency needs to realize that money can disappear without a trace. And also, those that are stealing that money, where is it going? What are they using it for? How is it going to affect our world? And how is it going to affect our national security interests? And remember... I'm sorry, our, our national security interests, you need to think from a global perspective because the decisions sometimes that we take have global ramifications. So how about the regulators in this instance? I mean, where are they right now and what are they doing to respond to these types of events? Well, they're aware of these issues. The FBI receives calls all the time of different issues with cryptocurrency. Um, the different banks and different, you know, the central banks of different countries some of them are looking at other ways of maybe using cryptocurrency. Russia did not like this, uh, the Bitcoin and the, the I was going to say, especially um, Iran was looking at Bitcoin as a solution uh, from being cut off from international payment, the international payments network um, last year. But in February, their central bank nixed that idea, and they said that in general, they were a little bit concerned about the Bitcoin. So, you know, it, it depends which cryptocurrency we're talking about, and it depends on the country as to how they're going to respond to it. Yeah, I know there's, a, you know, obviously a lot of interest in uh, law enforcement in cryptocurrency, and we talked about that on the la last week's episode. But as far as the regulators go, in your estimation, do they have the right response in place right now? I think this is a very difficult and complex area, so it's not an easy answer. I, I can't say that they're taking the right steps. I know everybody's aware of it. Everybody's concerned about it. We know that there are, you know, our companies like Google and Facebook have stopped the advertising um, of, of cryptocurrencies. So we are seeing changes, but I think everybody is, 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 is trying to find out more information. I mean, this is a technology that is evolving very quickly. And as we see now with countries and the, and the use of it. So you got to be careful. And That's really interesting about Facebook and Google that you mentioned that, that they stopped the, the advertising on cryptocurrencies. I mean, I actually didn't know that. Right. And, and, and other countries like in, in China as well, they don't allow uh, the advertising. There are several countries out there in which they said, you know what, we're not comfortable with this at this point, And so we don't want to promote it. This is sort of a political question, but I see, I, you know, it, do you see any uh, for, foresee or predict any U.S. sanctions being lifted in the near future that kind of changes things? Well, we, we, we have two different issues here. We have the sanctions that are imposed on countries and, uh, you know, there are also other types of partial sanctions. And I think, you know, the Trump administration is looking at lifting sanctions against one of the major Russian uh, aluminum companies. So sometimes we see things like that. But if a country has a sanction, there's a reason it's in place. And I, you know, I, at this point, I don't have enough information to say that we would be lifting any. I mean, it just depends on whether or not they can agree, um, you know, within the negotiations as to what our interests are and what their interests are. Clearly in North Korea right now, that's not happening. And in Venezuela, it's, it's an issue. Adriana, I really appreciate you coming on again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoy it, and uh, I enjoy speaking to your, to your listeners. I, I enjoy educating those that I can out there.
So look, you're doing a ton of speaking right now, aren't you? I mean, how do people get in touch with you if they want to have you speak at one of their events? Well, I'm, I'm going to be speaking in uh, this year. I'm speaking in New Orleans for the Security Congress, but I, I have a website. It's uh, my name, adrianasanford.com, so they can contact me there. I'm also speaking at LMU um, on 9-11 about these topics. So the best way to reach me, I would say, is, is the website. Well, that's great, folks. I mean, if you, if, if, uh, if you want Adriana to speak at one of your events and you want to make that request, make sure you visit our website, adrianasanford.com. I appreciate you coming in, Adriana. Thanks, thanks again. Thanks, George. Take care. Hey, so we've run out of time, folks. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.